0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're The, the Trade, trade Guys. Guys.
1: You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys.
2: In this episode, we talk about the latest updates to the Reconciliation Bill, a new Indo-Pacific framework announced by USTR Thai and Secretary Vermondo and new developments in the U.S.-India trade relationship. We also discussed the U.S. decision to join the MC-12 proposal to extend the WTO e-commerce moratorium. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Hey Scott and Bill, we have a bunch of topics to cover today, so let's get started. The biggest piece of news this last week was that the House approved $2.2 trillion of spending as part of President Biden's domestic agenda. The reconciliation bill has provisions to mitigate climate change and expand healthcare, and it allocated $320 billion to support domestic manufacturing. In this proposal, there are tax credits for things like solar panels, electric vehicles, batteries, and microchips, but this tax credit issue has been the source of much debate. Can you both explain what's going on here?
1: Well, it's difficult to pin it down precisely because it's it's unclear to me, at least, that the package that passed the House very narrowly, whether it's going to pass the Senate or not. I, I'm not even clear that it's exactly what's going to be taken up. But certainly, there's a, there's a lot of what would what we would characterize as industrial policy in this uh, subsidy package for uh, for domestic manufacturing. Now, that is very similar to what happened with the bipartisan infrastructure bill. There were a lot of new requirements for U.S. content in the infrastructure bill that was passed a few weeks back. So there's the general direction the administration seems to be taking is toward more, more U.S. content. This one in particular has... Uh, has a, a lot of provisions uh, that that specifically support the steel industry and one that has created some controversy for regarding electric vehicles where if you are an American firm with UAW or, or the, you're, you're a unionized firm, I think UAW may not be specified, but unionized automobile production uh, gets a larger subsidy than uh than uh, other electric vehicles. And there's a a US content requirement. Now, that has a couple of problems associated with it from a trade policy standpoint, but it also, before you get to that uh, threshold, it seems to me that the Senate politics may be quite different than the House politics on this. The House pulled the package together, but there are, as I counted them, at least 10 Democratic senators who represent States in which there are auto facilities that are, in most cases, foreign-owned, but are non-union, and so each one of those senators will have to be prepared to throw their uh, their employers under the bus uh, if they proceed with the with the package as written, and so and so it's like Colorado. That's the California, Arizona, Georgia. That's eight eight Democratic senators. In addition, there are Toyota and facilities in. West Virginia and Honda facilities in Ohio that would affect Senator Manchin and Senator Brown. Uh, so we'll we'll see. This this one is, and it's not surprising that the politics of the House are different than the politics of the Senate. But this one, that's the first threshold, and then you get into a, a whether or not this is consistent with with our international obligations, especially USMCA.
0: Scott's point is is well taken. Senator Manchin has been particularly outspoken about this, saying you know, this is not who we are as Americans. And I I think he's right. At the same time, you know, I recall this from my days as Senator Rockefeller, where I had some actual peripheral involvement in in the investment. Toyota is one of the larger investors in West Virginia. And what Manchin is doing is uh, making a statement on principle, but he's also taking good care of his constituents. There's a lot of West Virginia jobs tied up with the with Toyota. And the tax credit is unusual in that explicitly, there's a basic tax credit of $7,500 for any EVs, but there's an additional $5,000 if your car is assembled in the United States by union labor. And so that's the issue that has uh, driven the lobbying train, because you've got uh, a number of companies, Toyota being one, that assembles in the U.S. but are non-union plants, Uh, And then you've also got, of course, other companies, including Toyota, that import as well as uh, assemble domestically, and their imports would be excluded from the credit. So we think this pretty clearly violates the uh, national treatment provisions of the WTO. It would make us vulnerable there. Since the federal government has announced plans to convert the entire federal fleet of cars and trucks to electric, that is a, if they did that, all at once, or even in big pieces, that would be purchases that would be exceed the floor in the government procurement agreement uh, above which purchases are are susceptible to the government procurement agreement rules. This would violate GPA rules uh, because Japan and Canada are both GPA members. So you know it it runs afoul of things on on multiple fronts. We've been doing some work at CSIS on how the administration is approaching climate issues generally, and we've been contrasting it with Europe and China and how they're doing it. And it's a little bit distressing on the U.S. part because in all three areas, there seems to be three objectives. One, accelerate the transition to renewable sources of energy. Two, promote your own industry in doing so. And three, respect trade rules. And what we see happening is in in the case of the US, the administration is doing the first two and and throwing the trade rules under the bus. And they're doing the first two rather cleverly because normally the first two are at odds with each other. If you're going to have a domestic content requirement, for example, that's going to make your products more expensive vis-a-vis imports. And if you've been buying the imports, you're going to stop buying the imports that's gonna slow down the transition to renewables. It's gonna, in the case of solar energy, which is the best example, it's gonna sl- slow down uh, imports of slower p- solar panels and the transition to solar. The administration is getting around that, I think rather cleverly by saying, all right, we're gonna have domestic content requirements, but we're also gonna have big subsidies, tax credits for solar that will lower the price of uh, domestic solar, hopefully to the point where it's competitive uh, with imports. So what that means if you're uh, a developer building, you know, lots of houses or uh, apartment buildings or doing anything else that requires or we're thinking about solar installations, you know, what the government is trying to do is equalize the cost, which allows them to kind of have their cake and eat it too, you know, accelerate the transition and at the same time promote the domestic industry. Uh, The loser in that equation is trade law because they're doing it in a way that contravenes uh, WTO trade rules. And that kind of worries me, because what the United States has done for 70 years has been the standard bearer of rules and international trade rules. And here, what we're basically doing is saying, you know, we're going to ignore them when when they're inconvenient.
1: And that makes me nervous. Well, this this whole thing is riddled with lots of question marks. I hope People are reading the bill and looking at what's in it. I, I find it somewhat amusing that a couple of the very large provisions of of this reconciliation bill appear to be uh, tax cuts for the wealthy in terms of uh, uh, the raising the cap for state and local income taxes and uh, and corporate subsidies. And over the years, it's typical when there's a Republican-led package that those are the two things that Democrats accuse Republicans of doing: cutting taxes for the rich and uh, uh, having lots of corporate pork and indeed the the item we talked about today could be characterized as corporate pork but the uh, one of the biggest cost items in it is is literally tax cuts for the rich so it, it'll be hilarious to see this proceed and and watch uh, watch the American public uh, figure out what's in it uh, whether before or after it becomes law so
0: there is one new development on that, though, today. I, I see a notice today, the joint, the joint Committee on Taxation, which is the congressional committee that is assigned to score these things, announced that they've made a calculation error. And in fact, millionaires are going to pay more, something like 3.6% more. Oh, So I wouldn't say that's uh, going to drain them and put them all in the poorhouse. But it's not a reduction, at least on, on that front. Uh, On the other hand, it is not the way the, uh, the ultimate bill is going to turn out, as Scott noted. It's going to undergo a lot of further change.
2: What do you guys think is the most likely outcome of the tax credit debate in Congress? Do you think that the provision will be dropped entirely or does a middle ground exist that could appease Canadians, Mexicans, Joe Manchin and also climate activists?
1: Well, we've been subsidizing electric vehicles for, for a number of years, at least a decade now. I, th- I think it goes back to, to probably 2009 or so. There were smaller subsidies before that. So subsidizing electrical ve- vehicles is nothing new. And we've done it in a way that is pretty neutral in terms of which vehicles qualify. But, uh, so I think, I think there is a fallback position that's not unlike current law. What's worrisome about this is that we've done that. Scott's exactly right. What usually happens
0: is these differential proposals, these discriminatory proposals, get made all the time. Usually the administration comes in at some point uh, and makes them go away, either by opposing them or they get dropped in conference or something happens and they go away. What worries me this time is the administration's not opposing them. The administration's embracing them. And that's kind of a new thing. I probably, Trump probably would have done that too, had it had he been able to produce a, uh, you know, one of these bills, but this is different. Normally, administrations have have, uh, the Democratic administrations have not always opposed them publicly, but they've tended to either make them go away or insist on on you know waiver clauses that make them relatively meaningless once they're enacted. This time, it may go away for the reason Scott said, because you're going to have Democratic senators who are going to stand up for their constituents and and not support it. But the fact that the administration uh, appears to be supporting them the way they are suggests that that, uh, it's going to be a more complicated road than it usually is.
2: Yeah, by the time our next episode is out, there will probably be new updates for us to cover, so we'll keep following the issue. But switching gears now to our second topic on the opposite side of the world, USTR Thai and Commerce Secretary Raimondo have been traveling all around the Asian and Indo-Pacific region the past few weeks. Catherine Tai is in India today, so we can talk about her visit more specifically. But before we get to that, there have been a lot of talk about a new Indo-Pacific framework. I think Secretary Raimondo has said that this framework wouldn't be a traditional trade deal, so it wouldn't need to go through Congress. And Bill, I know your column this week was about the topic. So uh, do you have any reactions to what came out of the trip or rather what hasn't come out of the trip?
0: Well, the column was called Where's the Beef, which um, kind of suggests where it was going. And for those of you that are of a certain age, which would include Scott and me, I think Jasmine said she had to she had to look the commercial up. It, it re- relates to a commercial that Wendy's did in, in 1984 that had a little old lady holding an enormous bun with a very tiny burger in it saying, where's the beef? And it got adopted by the Mondale campaign, which he used to attack one of his Primary opponents as proposing a variety of things that had no substance to them. So where's the beef became kind of a meme in, in the 1984 uh, election process. And it never really went away. It's, it's something that people use and it's a fair statement about this one. Everywhere they went, they established partnerships. You know, they, there were two Japanese partnerships that came out of it. And, uh, I think Secretary Romando met with a number of trade ministers from Australia, New Zealand and Singapore, I think in Singapore and made a number of commitments there for further cooperation. And then the big deal was the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which was announced very clearly as not a trade agreement, better than CPTPP, and not something that's going to be sent to Congress because it's not an agreement, which kind of left open the question, so what's in it? And the answer is that not a lot there. You know, We're going to cooperate on, on digital trade, on supply chains, on a variety of other things. But not a lot of meat on, the, on, on those particular bones. I, I think we at CSIS are gonna be in the next few weeks working on trying to put some meat on the bones, but uh, the administration not, has not done that yet. And I always end up thinking, you know, what they really are gonna say is, well, we're gonna talk about labor and the environment, which is what they always say. So who are we gonna talk about labor and the environment with, you know? We're gonna talk about labor with the Australians, and the New Zealanders. I mean, they're not notorious violators of labor rights. I mean, I just don't,
1: I don't see where the beef is. Scott, do you have any ideas where it is? Well, actually, I don't think there is any here, to be honest with you. I think we're we're left with nothing but tofu. But it's one of these things, look, it would be shocking if a couple of cabinet officials went to the Asia-Pacific and did not have successful visits Define success any way you like. Look, senior American officials have been well-received in in the Asia Pacific since the close of World War II. So uh, they they want us as a a friend, they see us as an ally. And so the fact that it was a good trip means almost nothing. The issue, and Bill, I think you raised it in part in your column, is what American firms and and farmers and, and workers really care about is market access. And nobody is trying to achieve better market access for American exports. And, you know, I'm sorry, that's called a trade agreement and you have to have negotiating objectives and you've got to go engage in some real bargaining. So I'm just, I'm totally nonplussed by, by spending this much time and effort. And I'm sure it was a big delegation. I'm sure they had a massive carbon footprint in the, in the motorcades that were involved in this to not talk about anything that is of, will be of tangible value to Americans from a commercial standpoint. I hope to be proven wrong about this, but I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it's like it's just a press release at this point. And I'm hoping for more. Maybe it'll show up, but I can't see it at the moment.
2: Secretary said, quote, we absolutely do not envision this to be a traditional trade agreement and do not envision it to require Congress to be involved. What is the argument for and against negotiating objectives or an agreement that Needs approval from Congress. Is the Biden administration pursuing this because they don't think it will pass or because there's no TAA renewal?
1: Well, it's hard to tell because this is a statement about what it's not, but I don't really understand what it is. Bill, you've probably studied this more carefully than I have. Well,
0: partly it's a semantics of convenience. They don't have trade promotion authority anymore. It expired. They let it expire. They didn't indicate any interest in renewing it. Still have not. So they don't have negotiating authority for an agreement, which means they don't have a negotiating authority for tariffs or other changes that would require legislation. So it necessarily uh, you know, has to be different from an agreement uh, because they don't really have authority to do that. What it means in practical terms is if, if they're not going to submit it to Congress, it means that it's not going to require the United States to do anything because the criterion For submitting an agreement to Congress, is have we committed ourselves to anything that requires a change in U.S. law? Because if no change in U.S. law is required, then no congressional action is required. Except for USMCA, the Trump administration didn't submit its agreements with Korea and Japan, to name two, to Congress. And their argument was we don't need to because the agreements don't require the United States to change any of its laws. And to the extent that there are issues that might force us to do that. They were all bumped into sort of phase two of of the negotiations, which then never happened, partly because Trump was not reelected. So that suggests we're looking for agreements in which all the commitments are made by the other guys and not by the United States, which reminds me a little bit of, of uh, what Wilbur Ross, the uh, Secretary Raimondo's predecessor, said when he when he first took the job, and he did, I remember the interview, or actually it was a speech. He said, you know, basically, Americans have been giving at the store for 40 years by, in terms of making trade concessions that have advantaged other countries, and it's time for the others to give back. And you can agree or not agree with that. I don't agree with it. But, he, you know, his point was, we're going to negotiate agreements in which they give us everything and we give them nothing. And it seems to me that we're kind of setting ourselves up for, for the same the same thing, you know, let's do a digital trade agreement, which is clearly one of the topics that's on the agenda. But let's uh, get the other countries to commit on, you know, no data localization, free flow of data, a variety of other things, things that we have already committed to. So it's easy for us. My instinct is that, you know, negotiations aren't quite that simple. The other guys come in and they want things from us. And if we're not in a position to give them, it's not going to lead to a very successful negotiation.
2: What are the latest updates to USTR Thai's visit to India?
0: Well, that creates an opportunity for a new pun. They didn't reach a lot of agreements. They reached agreements on mangoes, uh, pomegranates, cherries, and alfalfa, which gives not new meaning, but old meaning to the term low hanging fruit. They actually picked the low hanging fruit in the case of India. And it was cherries, mangoes, and pomegranates, all of which I think do get picked.
1: Yes, we'll throw in the cereal grains for free. Yeah, that's right.
0: <laughs> Alfalfa was a sidebar. Beyond that, there seemed to be in the in the statement there seemed to be no reference to uh, next week's ministerial conference at the WTO, where India is the. Uh, the biggest problem child. No reference to uh, getting back to Indi- getting India back into the GSP program, which was India's main demand. And uh, Ambassador Tai said something to the fact that they, consi- they would continue to consider that. I mean, in the short run, it's academic because GSP has expired. So bringing anybody back into it doesn't mean anything because the program doesn't exist. But uh, we expect it will be renewed retroactively at some point. But they didn't agree on that. The Indians apparently would not agree to the restarting a working group on digital trade, which was one of our big asks. Some other working groups on, you know, IP, on agriculture, on manufacturers, uh, they agreed to restart those groups. Remember, this was the trade policy forum that uh, was supposed to meet regularly and did not meet throughout the, you know, has not met for four years. It met once in the Trump administration and then never met again. And so they did commit to doing it again next year, which is a good sign, but the agreements are literally low-hanging fruit, and that's about it. None of the big issues were dealt with. And I think it was a reminder that the Indians simply are not ready to take uh, big steps on trade. Uh,
1: they they have never been, uh, and they still aren't. Bill's right. As a founding member of the GATT, India has been one of the least likely to contribute positive elements to, to trade liberalization over the years. They've been, they're, they're always the last to agree to to almost anything. And so while that's that's not new, I just, you know, here we are heading into the Thanksgiving break and uh, we're almost a year into the Biden administration. And there are a lot of elements of trade policy which are still under review or undefined. And... Uh, Time time goes fast uh, when you're, when you're we're having fun, and uh, there's a lot going on with the administration, and I, I really understand that they're dealing with multiple uh, crises at the moment. Uh, but uh, trade policy is, seems to be in about where it was, you know, maybe a year ago, so. I have to say, I'm, uh,
0: people will complain when I say this, but I said it to a reporter earlier, so I'm kind of stuck. I think they're being super cautious uh, because they're afraid of their left wing. You know, trade was a contentious issue in in, in Obama. It was a contentious issue in, in, in Clinton between the left and the center. The left wants to talk about uh, labor environment. They don't want to talk about anything else. They think agreements that involve market access are basically concessions to big corporations that exploit the workers. And uh, the best way to, uh, and that's a big intra-party fight. I mean, if you look at polling data, by far, the largest segment of the of the Democratic Party is is pro-trade, and actually more pro-trade than the Republicans are right now. But they have a very vociferous minority uh, on the left uh, that is not. And uh, rather than confront that and deal with it, I think the administration has figured out that, you know, if we're not negotiating anything, then we're not going to have a fight over what we're negotiating. And uh, as long as we're talking about cooperation and partnerships, and talking about cooperation and partnerships that include talking about labor and environment, and as long as we're just talking, nobody's going to complain, and intra-party peace is maintained, uh, and we need that because of all the other things we're trying to do. But what that means is, uh, you know, a very unambitious uh, trade agenda. Uh, And I think they're just, you know, they're afraid of the left. Uh, and are being very, very cautious about it. If and when reconciliation is is passed, if that happens, which I think if it happens, it'll be this year, can we then move on to a, a, a trade policy that, you know, among other things, actually does look at market access and, and helps Americans sell stuff? Uh, or are we going to be locked into this for uh, for four years? I don't know. We'll find
2: out. Well, speaking of trade policy and negotiations, as Bill mentioned, the WTO ministerial is coming up. And one of the latest updates is that the U.S. has joined the draft ministerial decision to extend the WTO e-commerce moratorium. So the U.S. has been in support of a permanent moratorium. And there are now three dozen signatories of this decision. But countries, namely India and South Africa, are not on board yet. What were your reactions to the latest update here?
1: Well, look. This was a position they were likely to take. The uh, moratorium has been extended at every ministerial, although not without drama. So I'm I'm expecting the usual perils of Pauline, leading up to uh, another uh, extension until the next until we meet again.
0: Yeah, I'm less sanguine about that because I think the administration made a major tactical error. There always has been a lot of drama associated with it, but it's been it's been paired. With drama in the other direction, which is the United States. The Indians have consistently wanted a moratorium on bringing what are called non violation cases against other countries. A non violation case is where you complain that the actions of another country have denied you benefits that you're entitled to under the WTO, but you don't point to a specific rule that they broke. So that's why it's referred to as a non-violation complaint. And the Indians have wanted to, because they would be a primary target if those cases could be brought. uh, The Indians have wanted a moratorium on the right of other countries to bring those cases. The Americans and other developed countries have wanted a moratorium on on e-commerce taxation and every ministerial, both of those moratoria have been extended. And it's usually because of a bargain. The Indians go along with e-commerce, and we go along with non-violation agreements, and the deal is cut. This time, agreement was reached on the non-violation moratorium two weeks ago, uh, and the U.S. went along with it. Now we're coming in trying to establish the e-commerce moratorium, but the linkage has been broken. You know, will the Indians and the South Africans act in good faith? You know, the United States having agreed to theirs, will they now agree to ours? I don't know. I mean, good faith would suggest that they should. And maybe last minute drama will be averted. But I have a feeling that the United States may have made a tactical
1: mistake here
0: in allowing the two to be delinked.
1: And reminds me a little bit of uh, the scene in Animal House where uh, where they return with, uh, with Flounder's brothers... Lincoln Continental, and it's completely trashed. And uh, Blonder said, you guys told me you'd take care of it. And uh, Otter and his pals responded with, hey, you messed up, you trusted us. And uh, so we, we may have found out we trusted the wrong people, but it's something we'll, we'll find out soon enough. I'm
0: very worried about uh, the ministerial. I, I'm told by people that are there that uh, there's there are some people that are optimistic, There's some optimism about fish. The agreement on domestic uh, services regulation seems to be going through, and the US joined that. That's a a plurilateral Mm -hmm. agreement, which uh, that's a good thing overall. I think if we could get a fisheries agreement, that would be major, but as we've been saying, uh, the problem there is really India. Uh, China is the biggest offender in the sense that they're the biggest mass fisher out there. But I think the Chinese, at the end of the day, will be able to cut a deal on this. The Indians seem to delight in, uh, in objecting and bringing everything down. So uh, we'll see if, if uh, reason prevails this time around or
1: not. It's likely the pattern will hold, but uh, that's why we keep doing these podcasts. <laughs>
2: so. so I hope both of you have a restful holiday and then come back ready to talk about all of the trade updates.
1: Thank you. Thank you.